0: and amen. Children, you are dismissed, and as you are finding your seat, please say hello to the person next to you. Welcome them to our service. Well, it is a pleasure to be worshiping with you, whether you are online or in person. We are going to conclude our series in the seven churches of Revelation. Now, you wish, you really wish that we could end on Philadelphia, because Philadelphia was a good church to end on. You feel encouraged. There's an open door that God has for you in Philadelphia. But we end with Laodicea, the worst church that we read about. Yes. All right. Well, let us pray, and then we will jump into this difficult word together. Father, we are so gracious that we as a body of believers can come together today. I pray, Holy Spirit of the living God, that you will fall fresh upon us. As you have been falling fresh upon so many colleges and so many churches in our nation, we ask for that for us this morning as well. That as we open up your word, that we will be convinced and convicted. That we, as you say At the end of each of your letters to the churches, may we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. Thank you, Father. May you be with us, and may we hear from you this morning. And may it not just be for information, but for transformation. In your name, amen. Well, when I was in high school, between my junior and senior year, I went on a missions trip for a month to Peru. And while we were in Peru, we went to the jungle and spent most of the time working in jungle villages that were near uh, the, the river, the Amazon River. So we would float up and down the Amazon River to these different uh, jungle towns. And when we were done, we took a 24-hour barge ride back to the city of Lima in Peru. And when we went there, we were excited because we were going to eat good food. Not that there wasn't food available to us in the jungle, but it was jungle food. And now we are going to have city food. So we sit down at a restaurant, and the bread is incredible. It is the freshest, most delicious bread I have ever tasted in my life. And then they bring this glass of purple juice. Now, you need to know something about me. I love grape juice. I love it. When I was a kid, I would always ask the deaconesses to add extra grape juice to communion so that I could finish all the blood of Jesus. If you're queasy, you might not like to hear this next part, but as a pastor's kid, I would do cleanup, taking all of the communion cups out of the pews and would finish what people left i was young i admit it's disgusting (laughs) but grape juice was one of my favorite things on the entire planet so when i see this beautiful cup of purple goodness my mind automatically goes to grape juice and i take a sip and i almost spit it out it was tepid it was not cold it was not refreshing and i spoke some spanish so i asked the server ¿qué es esto? And the the server says, Ah, que bueno, Es, es jugo de maíz. For those of you who don't speak Spanish, that's juice of corn or corn juice. In Peru, they have this very special purple corn that they crush together and make corn juice. If you've ever had corn juice in your life, it's interesting. And when it's purple and your mind is telling you grape juice over and over again, every time I would take a sip of this purple thing, I would want to spit it out of my mouth. But I was very, very good and culturally proper and drank the whole thing. I share that with you because I think that we as believers and churches in the Western world, we might think we're grape juice, but we're actually corn juice. There might be this sense of cold, refreshing goodness that everyone wants to take a sip of, but we're actually tepid, not sweet corn juice. We may picture ourselves one way, but we're really another. And our faith may look good on the outside, but inside it could be vomit-inducing. Now, this is not a fun scripture passage to preach on. It's not one of those ones where you're as a preacher, you wake up in the morning and say, I can't wait to preach on Laodicea. Because Laodicea was a church that tasted like corn juice, but thought they were refreshing grape juice. They had no idea who they really were, and Jesus had to tell them who they were. They were living tasteless Christianity. Christianity. That's the life that this church in Laodicea was living. And we often can do the same thing while thinking that we are living tasty Christianity. So the question that Laodicea in this passage gives us is, how can we avoid living tasteless Christian lives? How can we avoid living tasteless? tasteless Christian lives. If you have your Bible, please open up your scripture with me to Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. It'll be on the screen. If you have your Bible, please read along. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of of God's creation. I know your works, and you are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me, Gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reproof and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him And eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Yes! Right? This is difficult. This is hard. There is nothing good that Jesus says to the church in Laodicea. Laodicea, as we always have to look at these churches, we have to grasp a little bit of context so we can understand what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is trying to explain to them. Because if we don't look at the context, we can kind of integrate our own theology, our own ideology out of this passage. Laodicea was a very wealthy city. It was very wealthy. It was known as the wealthy city in this area. Wealthier than even Smyrna, wealthier than Sardis. It was a very, very wealthy, affluent city. And they had very good clothing that they would sell. It was the best black wool you could ever buy in this area of the world. It was a place that you wanted to be if you were an aristocrat or had a lot of money. It was a rich city. It was also well known for their healing. There was a medicinal uh, school that was in Laodicea that all of the doctors would float to because they needed to learn all of what they taught. And they were excellent at medicinal inventions. Continuously, healing was happening through medicinal means in Laodicea. They had some of the brightest minds and some of the biggest wallets in the entire Greco-Roman world. In Laodicea, their their main part of medicinal life was for the eye and ear, which is interesting, as you will see, Jesus specifically speaks to them about salve on their eyes and white clothing rather than the black wool that they were selling. The church was very participatory in the city's wealth. The church was a wealthy church. If you were to look at the church from an outside perspective, when it comes to nickels and noses, that means their tithe and their number of people in their church, they looked successful. But Jesus has very tough words for them and explains to them that although on the outside it looks good, on the inside you're a mess. And so we find ourselves looking at this passage of Scripture and asking the question, how can we avoid living tasteless Christian lives? And I believe that Jesus in this passage gives us five ways that we can avoid living tasteless Christian lives. And the first way is Jesus, Jesus himself, because Jesus alone controls all things and holds all things in his hands. Jesus alone controls all things and holds all things in his hands. He says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. He wants them to know that he is God. He wants the church in Laodicea to know that he has been the very beginning of creation. He is the creator of all things, the amen, the hallelujah, the beginning and the end, that he is the true witness, that he is the one that we are to model our lives after and that he alone holds all things in his hands. A commentator named Wall says this, all three terms that Jesus gives are in deliberate contrast with the lukewarm Laodiceans who are neither faithful nor true to Christ and whose witness was virtually non-existent. Because the church was wealthy, because the church had so many people in their church, there was no persecution that we know of that was happening in the city of Laodicea. They thought they were kings of their castle. They thought they had everything they could possibly need as a church. And so doing, they began to live self-sufficient lives, believing the lie that they were in control of their own destiny. Now, when we believe that we are the ones in control of our own destiny, that we are the ones who bring about all of our wealth and all of the blessings upon our lives, we begin to put ourselves on a pedestal and we stop worshiping Jesus and begin to worship ourselves. Because self-sufficiency will lead to worship of self and a lack of surrender to Christ. If you feel that you need nothing in your life, you will not turn to Christ for anything. But you need to realize that even the blessings of breathing in the morning, the gift that you have of a job, or of a spouse, or of children that are healthy and whole and hale, that you woke up this morning and came to church, that you drove here and are able to open up the Scripture of God, all of that is a gift to you. You are not in control of anything. Tomorrow you could die. Tomorrow you could wake up with a very serious illness. Tomorrow your house could burn. We don't know. We're not in control. We are not self-sufficient. We cannot do it in and of ourselves. The wages of sin is death. All of our lives need to be surrendered to Christ. But often, we don't live that way. We, like the Laodiceans, sit back and feel as if we're in control. Now, we might not cognitively think that, but the way in which we live our lives can be so separate from surrender to Christ that we just do our own thing and believe that we can be self-sufficient and we neglect to lean upon the Lord. Now, when things get tough, then we're like, oh, I need to go to Jesus. But the Laodiceans, they were saying life is easy. I need nothing. How often do we find ourselves in that place? Again, this word is not easy. It only gets harder and harder to swallow. They were arrogant thinking that they were in charge. And Jesus said, no, I am the amen. I am the one in control. I hold all things in my hands. You do not. The second way that we can avoid living tasteless Christianity is the way of blessing. And here we get a little bit more intrusive into the life of Laodicea and our own lives. The believer is to be a blessing to the world and bursting with flavor to Christ. The believer is to be a blessing to the world and bursting, bursting with flavor to Christ. He says in this very, very clear passage, I know your works. Now, we see that he says this to every church. It is the Greek word oida. Many of you will remember that word that we've talked about for the last six weeks because Jesus continuously says it. I am intimately aware of your works. I know how you've lived your life, I know what you've been doing with your life, I know your innermost thoughts, I know the way in which you think of yourself, I know how you've been self-sufficient, I know your works, and you are neither hot nor cold, you are lukewarm. Now this, this would be very uh, obvious to the Laodiceans what Jesus was actually saying. I think that sometimes this is where we can interpose our own theology on this passage, where we don't really pick apart what is Jesus actually saying to the Laodiceans. Because in this, in this passage, we are confused maybe as to what lukewarm might mean. They did not have their own water source in Laodicea. Even though they were a wealthy city, they were in a place that did not have its own springs. They relied upon the the Colossians for refreshing spring cold water that would come into the city. And they relied upon Hierapolis, which would give them hot spring water that would flow and was utilized for medicinal reasons. It had all kinds of minerals in it that would help for the medicinal reality of the their healing schools. They've used the hot spring water significantly for that purpose. And the cold, refreshing water from Colossae is what brought their life-giving refreshment. And here, Jesus is saying to them, You're lukewarm. You're neither like the hot springs which bring healing, and you're not like the cold springs which bring refreshment. You're water that makes Me sick. Because you're from maybe the hot spring which has cooled down, and you're trying to be a flavorful, mineral-filled life with all of the wealth that you think you have within you, but those minerals actually will make you sick if drunk. And so here Jesus is telling the Laodiceans, in very short order, you're useless feel good. Osborne says, the Laodiceans should not have been, should have been known for their spiritual healing, like Heriopolis, and the refreshing, like life-giving ministry, like Colossae. Instead, as Jesus' next statement reads, they were lukewarm. They were devoid of works and useless to the Lord. They were not blessing the city with the ministry and gospel of Jesus. They were patting themselves on the back. They were looking at what they did and continuously talking about their wealth. Look how wealthy we are. Look how many people we have in our church. Look at all the stuff. Look at me. Look at me. Man, when that happens, and people, pastors, people of parts of churches, that they just talk about themselves, they're lukewarm, and God wants to spit them out of his mouth because they're not being reliant upon the Lord. They're looking at themselves. And here Jesus had strong words about those who thought they needed nothing, those who thought that they were the bee's knees because they were wealthy. He said, your works... Useless. Man, that is not fun. This is the actual worst word God could say to any believer in any church at any given time. You are useless. Man, if that doesn't make you stop and say, Lord Jesus, am I useless? I I don't know what else could cause you to pause and pray. Because our works often reflect our hearts. Now, our works do not save us, but our works reflect our hearts. If we are surrendered to Christ, we will want to do works that are in the aspect of humility. We will go and bless people without shouting it on the rooftops. We will love people without patting ourselves on the back. We will obey the scriptures without bragging about it. It'll just be our natural outflow of our lives. Our works will reflect our hearts. And so we must pause and pray and be convicted of the need to say, Lord, are my works reflecting a heart surrendered? Or are my works proving my own self-sufficiency? Where is my heart? How am I living this Christian life Now, all of the translations that we find for the word uh, that is in Scripture as spit are way too uh, diminished. Because the word spit, like you might think of a kid or a person, you know, spitting on the sidewalk. Oh, you know, he just... No, the word here in the Greek is emeo, and it means to vomit or throw up. He's saying that when... I try to partake of you as a church. I just want to throw up. Man, that that is not fun. That is not a, a blessing word. There is nothing good that Jesus says to the church in Laodicea. Osborne says the exalted Christ is challenging them with a powerful rhetorical question. Do you realize that you make me sick? This causes me to stop and say, Lord, does my life make you sick? Have we paused and asked that question? Does our church and the works that we're doing make you sick? Are they useless works or are they being used to move your kingdom forward? Are our lives proclaiming the truth of the gospel? Or are we just really jerky people in the world? Do we look arrogant and better than everyone? Do we act better than, even better than our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we put ourselves above others? Or are we humble and surrendering to you? I mean, that's a really hard question. Do I make you sick? And the answer might be yes. And that's where we can realize, man, I am on the wrong track. And the Holy Spirit, you know, when he, he wrote the word, when he carried the, the, the writers along, we see very often that this is not always a comfortable scripture to read. The whole Bible is full of really good blessings, but also really powerful rebukes and we need to in these moments pause you see the church in Laodicea believed this lie that because they were wealthy and because they had people pouring into the church that they were they were financially blessed so that meant that they were spiritually blessed and they didn't look beyond the physical wealth or people and this is one of the dangers of the health and wealth theology that we see all around that oh man if, if the Lord's blessing you financially God is so happy with you yeah he'll give you that BMW because he's happy you know if, if your church is packed with people all the time and you can see this this people just coming all the time more and more man just because they're there you you're blessed but there needs to be a pause and a question constantly in the life of the believer how am I living my life is is this your blessing or is this something that's distracting? Because for the church in Laodicea, it distracted them from seeing the truth. They were a vomit-inducing, self-congratulating, blind, lost and a church that was a pitiful excuse for being the Lord's bride. This is not fun. But it should cause us to pause and pray, "Where Am I? Because the third key is the key of reality. We should allow the Lord to open our eyes to the real condition of our hearts. The Laodiceans were looking at the wrong stat line. They were looking at their wealth and health, and they were looking at their, their, the numbers of people, and they might have even been looking at the things that they were doing. They were you know, spending their money and feeling good about themselves they're looking at the wrong stat line. They were not looking at the condition of their heart. As a collective church, they were not looking at the condition of their heart, and as people individually, they were not looking at the true condition of their heart. The gospel is consistent with the conversation of repentance, of looking at where we are. Lord, look into my heart, the psalmist says, and see if there's any evil way within me. And if there is, please remove it from my heart. But I think often we might be afraid if we pray that prayer what we'll find in our hearts, what the Holy Spirit will expose is the reality of where we really are. But we shouldn't be afraid of that because we need it. We need conviction. We need convincing of our own messy, conditional heart. It's okay to pray that prayer, to not be afraid because we can only live the gospel life when we are in right alignment with Him. The Laodiceans were not in right alignment. And Jesus was trying to point out to them, get back on track because it's not good. It is about to be over for you as a witness in that area because you're doing nothing. You're actually hurting the name of Jesus rather than helping the name of Jesus. How many churches, how many believers in our world today are hindrances to the name of Jesus rather than help? Sadly, way too many. And they think that they're great. And they would never see Their own mess, myself included. It's easy to really think good of myself. I'm one of those dudes that likes to look in the mirror and be like, yeah, you're good. And then, luckily, God has given me a wonderful bride who's like, you're not that good. You know, and that's good, because I need that. I need that. And we all need that. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. says, hey, you know, you're not that good. You need to turn back to me. Repent. And come back. Warren Wearsby says the lukewarm Christian is comfortable, complacent, and does not realize his need. How often do we sit back, kick our feet up, get excited about just going to church on Sunday and doing nothing more? Rather than moving on mission. Rather than being a blessing to our community, to our job, to the people in our lives To the people that need help and love, the marginalized, the pushed out. How often are we blessing them with our lives and with our works of service out of humility, not out of I'm better than. And we are called to so much more as a body of believers, as individual Christians, than just showing up on a Sunday. And you might say, well, you know, pastor, you've not really been talking about, you know, salvation and non-Christians often. Well, this is a letter to the Christian church, challenging them. So I want you to think about yourself, and I need to think about myself when we open up these passages. Because these are directly to us as believers. What is he saying to us? Make it a habit to expose, not hide the true condition of your heart. Christ. He says to the church in Laodicea, you are naked but I will cover your shame. I will give you clothing. This is hearkening back to the very beginning of fallen manhood. When man chose sin when man and and even Adam rejected what God had for them. When they came and turned back to him, he killed the first animal and clothed them. We see in Scripture, Paul says that we are clothed with Christ. This is all this imagery of covering over our sin, releasing our sin from us if we would just come and allow Him to bring that covering. But we can't allow that if we don't recognize our need for it. The fourth key then is the key of renewal. We are to be refined, renewed, revived, and recovered through reproof and repentance. It's a lot of R's. (laughs) Be refined, renewed, revived, and recovered through reproof and repentance. Here, he's challenging the church, you are a mess. You're disgusting and useless. But, but that can change. If you would receive the gold refined in fire from me, you'll have true wealth. The wealth that you have that you think is outwardly physical wealth that can buy you things. And the the black wool that you sell and that you are excited about. And you are arrogant about all of the good things that you have. He said true gold is refined. Which means you and I need to go through the fire once in a while. And we need to recognize that we've got some impurities. If you were to take gold and put it in a refiner's fire, the point of it is to take out the impurities to make it a more pure gold than what it was before. And if you were to say gold had physical feelings, being refined is not a a fun process. It's just not. But you and I, on a regular basis, need to be refined by the fire of the Lord. Because we allow impurities to come. We allow those things in our lives that, that will hinder us from getting close to the Lord, that will hinder our witness and our works. And we must release those And go through the refiner's fire. There's renewal that is promised. A covering that Christ brings to us. We see this beauty of revival that is still happening at Asbury College, where people are repenting, confessing. Several people are coming to know Jesus. Several people are giving their lives to service and missions work. Several people are being physically and emotionally and spiritually healed. There is renewal that is happening, and God wants to continue to renew the church all across the world, not just in Kentucky, not just in America, but cross transactional or cross continental rather all around the globe but when we need to be renewed we need to be honest with where the conditions of our heart is and God says I love you that's why I am reproving you I'm telling you that you're useless right now, not because I want to hurt your feelings or push you away and never draw you back into myself. I'm telling you that you're useless so you'll wake up and realize that you are meant for so much more. Will you come and allow me to clothe you with white garments? Will you walk through the refiner's fire? Will you accept my rebuke and my reproof? And will you repent of what you've been doing? Because... All things can be restored. No matter how useless we might be or how vomit-inducing our lives might be, there is always, always hope for restoration. To the very last breath that we have, we can be restored to our Father in heaven. And here Jesus is challenging them, please, please walk in renewal. We don't have to live vomit-inducing lives forever. We can be Good, tasting, refreshing, healing people. The fifth key then is the key of restoration. Relationship with Christ can be restored through intimacy with Him. Through intimacy with Him. He says this in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me when we're zealous in our repentance and we turn back to Him, we will hear the voice of Christ calling us at the door and we'll hear the knock on our hearts. There's a a very old image I remember seeing all the time as a kid where Jesus is knocking at a door. This passage has been utilized several times to depict Christ bringing people to salvation and that's true. But there's also this aspect of what he's saying to this church is, hey, you know what? You've kind of pushed me out of your life. You've kind of shoved me out the door. It's time to bring me back in. If you want to zealously repent and turn back to what you were called and created for, I'm knocking at the door. And this this image is not just an image of welcoming in for salvation. It's an image of intimacy. Intimacy. Because the words that are utilized, we don't often see, well, he's going to eat with us, he's going to dine with us. What does that mean? Well, this is my favorite Greek word. Well, one of my favorite Greek words in all of Scripture. He says, I will come in and have dipnon with you. And the word dipnon would have been very, very important to those in Laodicea because meals, someone that would have dipnon with you was going to sit and spend time with you. There was a purposeful desire for restoration if relationship was broken. There would be this long, lingering meal. I mean, you and I, in the American meal, we sit down, we throw it into our mouths, and we get up and go, right? I mean, Thanksgiving dinner with, with uh, Hillary's family lasts about five minutes. We're done. How many of you guys live that way? It's not healthy for your body, <laughs> nor is it healthy for your soul, because diapnon is meant to be a long, lingering meal where we spend time together, living life on life, taking slow bites of bread or turkey. Or whatever your favorite thing is to eat together. And Jesus says, I want to have dip with you. A long, lingering, restorative meal. If our relationship is broken, I want it to be fixed. It's intimate. It's a long, lingering meal. Imagine Christ inviting himself into your life to sit down and have a three-hour meal with you. A meal that long in a McDonald's society seems a little weird. But man, it is good just sitting and having non with him. Don't ignore Christ's invitation to intimacy. Please, whether you know Jesus or not, whether you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior or not, do not reject his call to intimacy. Because if you've not received Christ, he wants you to receive him. He wants you to confess and repent of your sins and turn to Him and say, yes, you are my Savior. You are my King. You are the only one who can bring me true life. I need your covering. I need the refiner's fire. But even as believers, we can have the same passionate desire for transformation and renewal and restoration. He is knocking at the door of your heart. He wants to have Dipnon with you, a long, lingering meal. All of these churches, except one, except one, were taken off the map. No Christian presence in all of these areas, except one. Philadelphia. Philadelphia, to this day, has a Christian witness. It's small, but it's there. I don't know how preachers talk and say, no, no more churches in any of these seven areas. It's not true. Because even in the, the city that is now called al Sahir, which we know is now a very Muslim area, there is still a Christian witness. And in fact, one of the ancient churches that was there, which was called the, the St. John's Church, there are pillars there that you can visit that are physical reminders of a church that was not wiped out. There are Christians that still live in al Sahir, And they were the only church that God did not rebuke. Man, if we could live like Philadelphia, walking through the open doors that he has for us, that we can live into the diapnon that he has for us. Man, may we do it. May we not be like the Laodiceans. I don't know about you, but I don't want to make God vomit. <laughs> I don't know. just might just be me. I want to be good tasting. I want to be a, a person of healing in the name of Jesus to this world. One that doesn't pat myself on the back, but looks to him and says, Thank you, Lord, for giving me the ability to do what you've called me to. Blessing, not cursing. Let's pray. Father, we need you. It is clear over and over and over again of our desperate need of you. I thank you for this passage of Scripture, which is not easy to hear, but also very hope-filled, in that if we would just open the door, you will come and have Diipnon with us. You will bring restoration through zealous repentance, and you reprove us because you love us pray that we will turn to you that we will lay it all before you that we will accept the invitation for diptanon in your name amen